Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning, and those watching online, welcome to Radiant Life. My name is Ryan, if you don't know who I am, the lead pastor here at Radiant Life. And for those of you that do normally know me, um, you notice this is a different posture today. Uh, My teaching monitor is not next to me, and I'm actually sitting down. (laughs) We will see how long I stay seated down. Uh, It's hard to get passionate and remain still. All right, but uh, welcome to week one of All of Us. It's our new series we're diving in, and if you've been with us here at Radiant Life, we've kind of been looking and going through here and there the book of Acts together, and we titled it Awaken. We really believe that God has a lot of things in store for us as a church and a body, and I think there's going to be a spiritual awakening in many of us, and not just those that attend here, but I think in other churches and in our community. I really truly believe that deep down in my heart, that we're going to see a spiritual awakening, that believers in Christ are going to come alive and actually live out the faith that Jesus Christ paid a high price for. And, um, and so we, we kind of wrapped up a, a Acts chapter 2 last week looking at how the early church maintained the move of God. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes on the people. 3,000 people get saved. I mean, God is doing amazing things. And what's grateful about the, what we're grateful about the book of Acts is we get a glimpse into what the early church did. What was their response? Excuse me. What was their response to the move of God? And that's what we looked at last week, how they devoted themselves to prayer and to the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and gathering in their homes, right? I mean, this idea of church was not just another priority, it was their top priority. And I think we have a lot to learn into. And what we realize is they were together, and all of them, and together. And you look at the end of Acts chapter 2, you notice all and together a lot of times there. And so we've titled this series for the next, this week and then for the next three weeks, all of us. Because I really believe it's going to take all of us to maintain a move of God. Every single one of us are invited into the game. None of us are invited to play the bench. We're all invited to play the game into the kingdom of God. There are no bench players in the kingdom of God. We're all required to jump in. And so this morning, I'm just going to take a few minutes. I'm not going to speak very long this morning because this week is the setup for the next three weeks. But I want to just talk to you from my heart. And that's why I chose in the chair because I just need to slow down a little bit. You see, I, I've talked to a lot of pastors in the area and, and in, this, in, in the country And in fact, after this service, I'm getting ready to go on a pastor's retreat with about 10 other pastors up north that are all over the country. And we're going to try to figure out what is God doing in the church today in discipleship. And I've been talking to other pastors and we realize that there's there's a little bit of an awakening but an angst within the American church. There's an angst and there may be a saying or a sense that many Christians have today and it's this, I ought to be doing something. There's got to be more to this faith, more to this life than just coming one hour a week and gathering in buildings and calling that good. Uh, About two months ago, I pulled up into my driveway and I sat in my van after I put it in park and I turned it off. And I began to wrestle with God a little bit. As I pulled in and put it in park and I sat there, I said, God, is this really it? We just gather people in a box and 
We hear a message, hopefully you got something out of it. We hear great worship and hopefully we engage in the worship and we're ushered into the throne room of God on Sunday morning. But is that it? And I was just wrestling in my own heart. There's got to be more to church than the Sunday morning experience. There's got to be more. And here's the result of Christianity today in America. People are getting bored with church. You know, they, they, they may try to sit through a church service in America here today, try to pay attention as best as we can to the pastor that speaks. Hopefully we don't get up too many times to use the restroom or get coffee, but sometimes that happens. But we try to pay attention, try to keep, keep you awake in a sense. Uh, we try to get your mind around what's hap- happening. Maybe people give, give their tithe, give 10% back to God. Uh, maybe they could be serving somewhere. And then one day, their hopes of getting to heaven, and they wonder if God will sit there and rebuke them because they never did what they were created for. They sit back and wonder, I ought to be doing something. Is there more to this life and this faith than what we exhibit today? Maybe for some of you, you've been in a church and you've heard this idea that Jesus is building his church. And that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But at the same time, it feels as though we look around at culture and it feels like the enemy has actually taken large territory. I'm wondering what is the church going to do about it. I'm wondering if the church will rise up and realize that the pastor is not the head, but our Savior Jesus Christ is the head, and we are to be obedient to his calling. That we will rise up and make sure that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That we will actively participate in, 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 and engage in the mission that God has called us to. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16 is where we get that Jesus statement. Matthew 16 verse 18, and here's what Jesus says in that statement. He says, I will build my church. Who builds the church? Jesus, not the pastor. Jesus does. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can we read shall not prevail against it together? Are you ready? One, two, three. Shall not prevail against it. Whoo! I mean, those are the words of our Savior Jesus. Now, here's what's fascinating about this verse. Is the location that Jesus and his disciples are when Jesus says this. In fact, if you don't know where they are in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13, they're in this region. Here's a map. That's Israel. Um, All the colors are the different... Are the different, like, I'm going to call them regions, or you can call them, like, counties type thing. But you have all those. At the very top of Israel is Caesarea Philippi. To our knowledge, and according to the Gospels, this is the only time Jesus ever goes to this city. So we have to ask the question, why does Jesus travel all the way to the northern part of Israel, to Caesarea Philippi, to make that statement? So I'm going to get nerdy with you for a moment, okay? Because I often say this, 
Cultural context is key to understanding God's word. You know, this was written, the New Testament, 2,000 years ago. So what we do is we got to open it up, but there's a layer of understanding their culture and their time and their context. It's like going to the beach. You and I may go to the beach soon, Lord willing, this cold spring will end and summer will actually come. And we will, yeah. All right, if you're clapping about the weather, you got to start clapping about Jesus here in a moment, okay? <laughs> and so we go to the beach, and we all are there together, and we lit the, literally go, this is beautiful. But if we go under the surface and realize there's a coral reef with life, and it's a whole other layer that we didn't notice before until we dug deep, and that is beautiful too, and that's what cultural context does for us. Imagine this, you and I write a letter about our last two years of experience with a pandemic. And then 2,000 years in the future, they read that letter. You're probably, they're going to be like, what in the world are they talking about? Like you shut everything down? Like, whoa, this is crazy, right? They would have to jump back 2,000 years ago to our time today to truly understand what we went through. Does that make sense? So we do that in God's word because there's a beautiful layer. So when we know that this is the only time Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi, according to the Gospels, there is a reason why he chooses this city to make this statement. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So we have to ask the question. What's going on in the city? What's happening here? So this is an artist uh, rendering of the ancient city of Caesarea Philippi. By the way, why is it called Caesarea Philippi? After Caesar, right? Uh, Herod's son, Philip, is reigning that region. Herod the Great, the one that killed all the two-year-old babies because he was against Jesus and trying to find Jesus and kill the, the, the king of the Jews. His son is reigning this region. His name was Philip, but he wanted to honor the Roman, the Roman government. So he calls it Caesarea to honor Caesar, but then he wants his name thrown in there too and calls it Philippi after him. So it's after Caesar and after himself, Caesarea Philippi. Here's the ancient rendering of it. I want to pan in right in the middle, middle where it says the Grotto of Pan. Here's another artist uh, rendering of what? That would look like during the time of Jesus in the ancient world. The thing on the left side of the screen would be the temple of Pan. Pan was a pagan god that they worshipped at Caesarea Philippi. Pan was a god that was half goat, half human. Pan had the legs in the bottom half of a goat, but the upper torso and part of the head as a human and a little bit of horns for the goat as well. Notice there's a black cave on the back side of the temple. Do you see it there? That was known as the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. Here it is today. If you and I were to go there today, this is what's left of the temple of Pan. And you see the cave there. 
Because in the ancient world, there was a rushing, gushing water and river that would go down. And in order to help people understand that they have sin and shame as they worship the pagan god Pan, they would throw them into the gates of hell. And if the water would rush over them and end up sweeping them away and killing them, they got their punishment and then they remained in hell. But if they were able to escape, at least they paid for their shame and guilt and sins and now they can live a life. But every time we'll just keep throwing people into the gates of hell and see what the pagan god Pan does. Here's a little interesting, if you look into the the rocks there, this is a close-up of the rocks that they would have the idols of Pan there. Are you thinking any book created by C.S. Lewis, who is half goat, half human? Tumnus in the Chronicles of Narnia. They did awful things in this city, the way they worshipped this God. In fact, it was absolutely inhumane. It was disgusting. And I will leave it at this. To worship this pagan God that is half goat, half human, they did things to goats in ungodly ways as an act of worship to the pagan And yes, in this moment, Jesus takes his disciples in Matthew 16, goes all the way up to Caesarea Philippi and asks them the question in this moment, who do people say the son of man is? And they're like, oh, some say you're the prophet, Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And and Jesus goes, okay, but who do you say I am? And in this moment, Peter speaks up and says, you are the Messiah, you are the son of God. And Jesus says, listen, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. This had to have been revealed from the Father above. And then he says, Peter, on this rock, Peter meaning little rock, but I think that statement is being made on the biblical truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the moment of all the cities to make that city or make that quote, Jesus takes his disciples to the city where there's absolutely brokenness in sin in awful ways. And he says, look at this. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. The sin and the oppression will not prevail. I will come to redeem all the brokenness. And Jesus travels to Caesarea Philippi to make a powerful statement about his church. And that's where we are. And you sit there and going, but is the church doing that today? Are we raising up an army to take back the territory the devil has claimed? Are we equipped to take it back? Because in the name of Jesus, we have power and authority over the enemy of our soul. And I think it's time that we stand up And say, listen, Jesus came to redeem everything that's broken, and so will we. We are on mission with Jesus. But I think that's going to cause us to have a different church scorecard. See, the scorecard in church right now, if you look at successful, what we would deem through our eyes as successful American churches is this. You would take the church and look at the output. And this is what we look at. We look at church as long as the output is people and money. That is the American success of the American church today. The question that's often asked, how big is your church? What are your numbers like? 
I'm sitting there going, you know, that is, I always say this, that's an indicator. But I'm more concerned of how many people are spirit-filled, walking in obedience to Jesus Christ and living on mission than I am the output of the number of people who come. That's my heart and that's my heart and passion. I think that's Jesus. So what I'm saying is I think we need to flip the scorecard in church world today. That people and money are actually inputs within the church body. That it takes people to come within and be the, be the church. And it does take some money because God asks for a tenth percent, a tithe back into his church, back into the storehouse as Malachi the prophet writes at the end of the Old Testament, so that we can further help develop and equip people. And then the output of the church is spirit-filled disciples making disciples who live on mission. It's not just people. It's the disciples who live on mission. And we must equip the people. And so it takes a little bit of a different scorecard. And the reason why we thought in the American church today, that the scorecard was always the output was people and money is because we borrowed it from the business world. We look at successful businesses by how much is their revenue and the people impact. I truly believe if we're going to change the world and make sure the gates of hell do not prevail against the church, those are the inputs for the right output to happen. And that's spirit-filled disciples making disciples who live on mission together. And so I want to take a quick look at three ships. I like ships. I don't know why. Um, I have a lot of ships and boat models. Um, I don't know. It's just weird. I have it. And so I like it. I think there's something majestic about a, a, a sailboat. There's just something majestic about it. And so I want to give you three mind, mind, um, some three different mindsets within the church according to ships real quick. I mean, number one, here's a mindset. Is a cruise ship. People have mindset when they come into the American church is this. The cruise ship, the church, will offer Christian luxuries for the whole family. As long as they're entertained, as long as the church meets my needs, they'll ask questions like, can this church improve my life? Does it have a good family ministry? Does it have good facilities? Um, Does the pastor preach funny, time-conscious messages, or do I have to sit through an hour of his message? right? Um, do I like the music, right? With the, with the cruise ship, it becomes about your preferences. And I think these are really good questions to ask. I, I do think that. But here's the problem. If that's the mentality we have is a cruise ship, as soon as that ship, the church, ceases to meet your need, you will look for another cruise ship in the harbor because there's plenty of them. Did not COVID reveal that to us? We had a lot of cruise ship mentality in the American church. Because what we did is when all churches went on lockdown, well, I don't like their mask policy. I don't like how they handled social distancing or vaccines and this and that. They, they opened up before this church opened up, so we left because they were going to meet my need. It was cruise ship mentality. I think they're good questions to ask, but I think there are better ship mentalities to have. Another one is this, a battleship. The battleship mentality says this, that the church is made for mission, and that's true. That its success, the church's success, should be seen loudly in the fights of the mission. 
And so the role of the church members is to pay the pastoral staff to go find the fights and we'll fight it together and make a super large, loud, or large noise together. I love the battleship mind because it does help us understand that there is a mission and a battle to be won. But I think that it's a wrong perspective still. I think the better perspective is the aircraft carrier. See, the aircraft carrier still engages in battle, but what does the aircraft do, carrier do? Equips planes and send them out into the battlefield. That's the church. That we, don't, we come and gather and know that we must equip you where you live, work, and play to go now have six days a week and have kingdom impact in your community. Where you live, where you work, where you play. Where you live, where you work, where you... One more time, where you live, where you work, and where you, that's what the church is to do. We can't sit back and say an hour a week is what we do. Because we'll lose against, we're losing ground in our culture today. And we must be quit. We must prevail against the gates of hell. We must share the gospel in our communities where we live. We must start ministries and Bible studies and invite lost friends into those Bible studies. Because they don't know, but they've been searching for the world for their emptiness that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Engage them. We need you to start things in your home where you work, live, and play. We need to be a discipleship factory that equips you for the purpose you were created for to go out and have kingdom impact. Am I the only one getting excited about this? So, Pastor Josh, will you grab it? So, I just think we need a new metric for how we define success within the American church. That there's got to be more than just the gathering. There are six days other than this one day that we gather. I think we ought to start not just, I think we ought to start, (laughs) I think we ought to start counting not just who's coming, but how many we're sending. The impact. Look over there. There's a blue ping pong ball. Someone walked their one into salvation. Can we give it to Jesus? Don't forget that. So, we as pastors got together, some of us got together, we were dreaming like, man, is there more? What was the mission? And we're revealing this, that it's going to take all of us. And here's the mission at Radiant Life. Living out our God-given purpose every day. By being transformed by Jesus, reaching the lost, and making disciples who make disciples. And most Christians have no idea what their God-given purpose is. Why why did God ever create you in the first place? You have a mission. You have a purpose in life. And we want to make sure that we at Radiant Life help you understand your God-given purpose in your life. And we want to help you truly be transformed by Jesus Christ. What does it look like not to follow the Americanized Jesus, but the crucified Jesus? What does it actually look like to be born again? Whew. To be absolutely transformed by Jesus. That you and I don't look like the world, but we look like our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
What does it look like to actually reach the lost, to be spirit-filled and have that holy boldness to reach lost people where we live, where we work, where we play, where we live, where we work, where we play? And what does it look like, the Great Commission, making disciples, but it doesn't stop there, who make disciples? That as we are in this thing called discipleship, and we're going to unpack that in three weeks, but that we are more than just making disciples, we are leaving a generational legacy, And so for the next three weeks, we're going to unpack this together. Next week, we're going to talk about our God-given purpose and what is it and how do we find it. We're going to talk about our God-given purpose because we want to live it out every day. The following week, we're going to talk about what does it truly mean to be transformed by Jesus Christ, our lives. And then the last week, we're going to combo the reaching the lost and making disciples who make disciples. This is what Radiant Life is all about. It's going to take all of us to accomplish this. Amen? Worship team, make your way up. And I love what Paul says to those Christians that live in Colossae. Paul was the greatest first century missionary ever seen. But before Paul became Paul, he was known as Saul, who persecuted the Jesus movement. But God grabbed a hold of him one day and he had an encounter with Jesus that changed him forever. And he changed his name from Saul to Paul. And he started church planning all over the ancient world. And he writes to the Christians in the church at Colossae. And you and I have the letter Colossians. He says this, one of the reasons why we exist, to present every person complete in Christ. And that's what it's about. Complete In Christ. But it's going to take all of us, friends. And I truly believe when we are living this out together, you're going to have impact in this community and where you live and where you work and where you play. You will have great impact. But please lean even into this. I don't think any of this is possible without being spirit-filled without actually living a spirit-filled and spirit-empowered life, it's one of the reasons why the Spirit came. To help us. To guide us into all truth. To help us understand why, what our purpose is. To absolutely, we would call this sanctification or walking in holiness, completely transformed by our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. He gives us the empowerment that even Peter had in Acts chapter 2 to speak boldly for Jesus in grace and truth. And he gives us the empowerment to make disciples who make disciples. I don't know about you, friends. I'm super geeked out about this. I can't wait to unpack this with you over the next three weeks. But remember, it's going to take all of us. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to take you. Turn to your other neighbor around you and say, it's going to take you too. True great impact will come when we realize we're on mission together. We don't gather just for one hour a week. We come to get filled, we come to get equipped, we come to enter into the throne room of God as we worship together as brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is a community out there for the next 167 hours throughout the week that needs your impact. And we can do it together. Together. So why don't you stand, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to pray. And yes, um, 
you're looking at your watch and realizing, wow, that's a short service this week. Enjoy it this week, all right? We realized we were like an hour and a half last week, and I, I just wanted to set it up. This was the setup. This was the setup. I love being your pastor. I love it. It's been a joy. But there's more for us. There's more. And I can't wait to discover the more with you all. There's more. Let me pray, and then we're going to sing a song called What a Beautiful Name and give all praise and honor and glory to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that we realize and understand that we don't just live here in the moment for one hour just gathering together and calling that faith and calling that good. God, I pray that you would awaken us even to a deeper spiritual awakening. Awaken us to the idea of knowing that there is more. There's more. So, Father God, may we rally not in conformity but in unity as we go after helping ushering your kingdom here on earth. Knowing that, Jesus, you have no rival. You have no equal. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. And that message needs to be shared to this world so we can be transformed, reach the lost, and make disciples who make disciples in living out our purpose. It's only because of you. You are good, you are great, and we thank you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Amen.